the choir helps us, God. Stephen and the band help us. Uh, musicians and writers and lyricists help us. This space helps us. Being together helps us. To worship you, to honor you, to give you our attention, and more than that, to give you our praise. Help us as we listen and reflect and think to also be inclined toward you in worship. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are good and fertile soil for your word. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate from your word in any way, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. So we are five and a half weeks into the season that the church has since the fourth century called Lent. It's a season during which we prepare for these six and a half weeks for Good Friday and eventually for Easter. It has been a time for the church over these centuries to prepare as we walk with Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem and specifically to his cross. To this end on Sunday mornings, we have been looking at different stops along Jesus' way, different facets, different interactions along his journey to Jerusalem and specifically his journey to the cross and specifically through the Gospel of Luke. Five weeks ago, we read in chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel uh, about Jesus, quote, setting his face toward Jerusalem. And that was Luke's way of doing this transition or shift in his gospel as Jesus literally turns his face and his focus toward his Father in heaven in a new way and specifically toward his mission, toward that big thing to which he was called the cross. Four Sundays ago, John spoke from the next passage in Luke's gospel about what Jesus called his disciples to do along that journey and in following him, and what he himself would have to do and did, denying himself. Three weeks ago, David spoke of, the, of a passage in the next chapter of Luke's gospel about what Jesus also called his disciples to do as he sent them out in twos, to trust God, to not trust in themselves, but to trust God fully on this journey ahead, as Jesus found himself similarly in a place where he now had to trust his Father in heaven in unique ways. Two Sundays ago, we read in chapter 10 about Jesus' interaction with Martha and Mary and through that conversation about what a holistic and healthy and complete and balanced discipleship looks like, following Jesus and his way in both work and in rest, in worship and in listening, in activity, and in being still. Last Sunday morning, we read from chapter 11 of Luke's gospel about a conversation between Jesus and some Pharisees over a meal in one of the Pharisees' homes, during which Jesus warned his listeners about the greed in our hearts, encouraged them to be generous toward the poor, told them that their practices of tithing were valid and good, and then said, in all of your giving, remember the justice and the love of God. The passage in Luke's gospel before us this morning sort of continues that theme, taking it a little bit farther but with a different twist. Listen closely as I read from chapter 19 of Luke's gospel beginning at verse 28. Jesus is coming closer and closer to his destination. This is the word of God. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up 
to Jerusalem. Luke wants his readers, he wants us to be reminded that Jesus is on this journey. It's been 10 chapters since he introduced it. Now he wants us to see Jesus is still in the lead. He knows where he is going. He has a mission. Nothing in this gospel or in Jesus' journey is random. None of it is by accident. As Jesus approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. And Luke here again wants to remind us and pull us back to chapters 9 and 10 where Jesus sends out his disciples in twos for the first time. And Jesus has resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. That was the beginning of this journey. Now we are getting finally to the end. As Jesus approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say simply, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as Jesus had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied simply, the Lord needs it. And all of this is intended to show along the journey and in this particular episode, who is in charge? Jesus' journey to the cross does not happen to Jesus. He was not a victim. He was not a passive actor. He was the one who was directing all of this, every move. He was in charge. Verse 35. Jesus' disciples brought the colt to Jesus. Jesus' disciples threw their cloaks on the colt. And Jesus' disciples put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When Jesus came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And while most of us are pretty familiar with this passage and its themes, because we reenact it every, every year on Palm Sunday, there are several things that are worth noting that maybe we have not seen. First, it was Jesus' disciples, specifically, who praised God and not so much the crowds. It's commonly been taught and told that all of Jerusalem turns out to praise Jesus in his so-called triumphal entry in Jerusalem, and that several days later, on the Friday we call good, that same crowd turned on Jesus and yelled, crucify him, crucify him. But that doesn't actually seem to be the case, at least not according to Jesus. Here it is Jesus' disciples, primarily, who are singing and shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Several days later, it will be others, not Jesus' disciples, who at the nudging of the religious leaders and the religious establishment, turn on Jesus in mass. Second, the disciples seemingly spontaneously and, out, and with loud praise of Jesus shout and sing. It, and that singing and that shouting was based largely on the miracles that they had seen and that they had witnessed in being with Jesus, in being in relationship to Jesus and proximity to Jesus. 
some of them for up to three years. They had seen people who had been born blind come to see, people who had been lepers for decades be healed. They had seen people, uh, small, small amounts of food feed thousands of people. They had seen the outsiders welcomed in, the oppressed lifted up, the poor cared for, those who had been mourning cared for, and the devil in varieties of ways defeated. After a person follows Jesus for a while, one can't help but see the effects of Jesus on a crowd. Third, the disciples praise Jesus not as a political or cultural victor as we sometimes are told this story amounts to. In fact, there are lots of reasons embedded deep within that his disciples don't really think he's going to overthrow Rome and that he is going to cause Israel to be once again a political force. But instead they have hints of his kingdom already embedded in the scriptures. There will be next resistance to the praise and worship of Jesus. The objection of some of the Pharisees in the crowd that day was an example of this. And Luke is unique in recording this. All four of the gospels tell us about Jesus' triumphal entry. Only Luke tells us about these Pharisees and their objection. And we don't know the exact reason for their objection. It could be that they don't want the Romans to get upset. They don't want the limited freedom that they already, that they enjoy at that point to be taken away. They are concerned about themselves. Or maybe those who are friends of Jesus among the Pharisees are looking out for his own welfare. They do so earlier in Luke's gospel and they want him to be well at times. We don't know for sure. What we do know is that these objections to praise and worship of Jesus weren't just then but continue today. I was interviewing someone for one of our staff positions this week and she said as I asked her and we talked about our faith, she said this is very strange and would be very strange for me to be able to work in a place where I can talk about my faith. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, when I try to talk about my faith, when I put something on my computer screen at my work, when I make a reference to church, it's always frowned upon and suppressed. And that may always be the case in our world as it was then and as it is here. But Jesus calls his disciples to lead the way. In everything, Jesus has a plan, but it is his disciples he empowers to go get the cult. It is his disciples who bring the cult. His disciples who put their cloaks on the cult. His disciples who put Jesus on the cult. His disciples who lead the singing. And sometimes the world follows. And there are several in this takeaways for us as well in the course of our daily lives, things that apply specifically for us. First, as disciples or followers of Jesus, we are called to be about his praise. Again, it was Jesus' disciples who lead the way, Jesus' disciples who he empowers, Jesus' disciples to whom he gives roles. And in the, in the quote on the front of our bulletins this morning by Daryl Brock, he points out the reality that Jesus doesn't often invite people to worship him. 
he leaves that role to other people. His mode of evangelism is to do and to be and to love. And in response to that and what people see from that leads to their spontaneous praise. Leads them to volitionally choose to worship him. Second, Jesus praising and worshiping disciples in chapter 19 of Luke's gospel clearly did not understand yet all there was to understand about Jesus. One will betray him. One will deny him. Maybe many of them, maybe most of them will shy back in doubts and fear for a moment, for a couple of days. Jesus' disciples don't know everything there is yet to know about Jesus. And yet, they are filled with praise. They don't know if he'll be crowned king. They don't know what will happen to him. And the situation is similar for us today. I spent three years in a seminary library and three years in seminary classrooms and three years in the books and the Bible. I went with some questions and thought I knew some things. And many of my questions were answered. I left with far more questions to ask and being asked. And maybe your life is similar and your faith is similar. There are things that we do not yet know, things that we do not fully understand, things that we can't get our arms yet around. Not all of our answers are satisfying about Jesus or the scriptures. And yet, the disciples worshiped wholeheartedly, exuberantly, enthusiastically. And we, even in our questions and lack of certainty in areas, are called to do the same. Third, our worship involves investment. Jesus' disciples began by putting their cloaks on the colt. Their coats and jackets of symbols were symbols of their worship and of their honoring Jesus. And then not only would Jesus, their king, not come in contact with the dirty colt itself, but the colt then would not even come in contact with the ground. Did you see that? That their reverence for Jesus was so high and their desire to esteem him so great that they took off their coats, put it first on the colt so their king would not come in contact with a colt, but then took their coats, their cloaks, their jackets, and threw them on the ground so that even the colt on which their king rode would not come in contact with the dirt as a sign of their awe at his being. Now when a colt walks, even a colt walks over a cloak on a dirty, dusty, rocky road, the washing machine doesn't clean it up. The dry cleaners don't clean it up. That's an act of sacrifice that can't be taken back and won't be taken back. In John's gospel, and only in John's gospel of the four, does the gospel writer talk about palms. In the other three gospels, it is not palms that they wave, but cloaks that they lie down. And you can see how a cloak in many ways is far more personal and far more of an investment and far more of a commitment, and far more of a sacrifice than a palm branch one will rip down off of a tree and later throw away. 
We should call it, instead of Palm Sunday, Cloak Sunday. Really? Why have we not? And fourth, this passage teaches us that praise and worship involve more than just songs, music, singing. Praise and worship involve the whole person and all of one's life, one's self, one's competencies, one's faculties, one's resources. We tend to think of music and worship and and singing as the primary means of worship, but this passage indirectly reminds us that our worship can embody so many other things as well and should. On Sunday morning, through time with children, as we watch, listen, pay attention, that should be a time for us of worship. When we are led in prayer, when we listen to God's word, When the offering is called for and we have the opportunity to give, as Walter said, as happens in Africa and lots of places and other places in the world, those are distinct opportunities of worship. Awaken the frozen chosen God. The worship of Jesus must not be limited to songs and to music. When Jesus' two disciples are called to fetch a donkey's colt on Palm Sunday, they had no other task in the world more important than fetching it. If someone said they were called to greater things, they were not because that was their act of worship. And so whatever you do, wherever you are, however you are, in this room, don't think that worship is limited to this room. When we go out, when we eat refreshments together, when we greet one another on the patio, those of us who clean up afterwards, and then when we leave this campus, let your life and every aspect of your life and relationship, every task, every tedium, be about worshiping God. That is the message of this passage. When you're at school, when you're at work, with your supervisor, with your friends, when you're selling insurance, when you're teaching children, may all of those things be acts of worship. 370 years ago, a select group of English and Scottish pastors, scholars, teachers, churchmen got together and came up with a teaching tool called a catechism that, thought, that sought to spell out in fairly simple ways for the church clear and concise facets of what the scriptures teach in question and answer format for easy learning. And one of their documents is, was called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And many of you know the very first because it's the very most important question and answer in that catechism. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The chief end of man is to bring to God glory and honor and praise and worship. Our primary purpose, what we're made for, what we're called for, is praise and worship and to find joy and delight and pleasure in that. In other words, to bring God glory and honor and worship and to find great joy in that, This is what we are made for. This is why we exist. This is our chief calling. 
This is our mission and purpose. When we are praising God, when we are, as our curriculum from last fall said in its first point, loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then and there will we find our hearts and our spirits true home and true peace. I can't say this enough. Martin Luther King Jr. said, the arc of the universe leads toward justice. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. But it's even more true that the arc of the universe leads back to God, its founder, its creator, its sustainer, its redeemer. The arc of the universe is worship and it bends us toward God in honor and praise. As we allow that arc to shape our hearts and our minds and our spirits, we will arrive at our heart's true home, our purpose, that for which we were made. And if we do not, Jesus says, that is our loss. He goes on to say in the next few verses, that is our loss. Because if we do not, and if the church does not, the stones will cry out. The stones will cry out. And all through Scripture, in a variety of ways, from the earthquake to the eclipse, to the heavens declaring the glory of God in Psalm 19, it is creation along with humanity that calls out to God in worship and in praise. And Jesus says, if you don't participate it's still going to happen because that's who God is. He is worthy of our worship and he will be glorified. We will be blessed if we get in on that action. Let's pray. God, we ask that in our busyness and our anxiety and our stress beyond Sunday mornings, in our tasks and our responsibilities and our distractions, that you would bend us toward you in worship, that you would draw us toward you in worship, outwardly and inwardly, with words and in silence, by ourselves and with one another. If we learn anything about Jesus' triumphal entry, as complex in some ways as it was, we learn, we see, we know that you are the king, our king forever. And you and you alone are worthy of all of our praise. May this be so. Amen.